Hello and welcome to the Rethink Energy podcast and welcome to 2023, our first podcast of the year. The Rethink Energy analysts are here with me and we're going to talk about this week's energy news. I'm the editor Peter White and we've got with us solar analyst Andres. Hello. Uh, hydrogen analyst uh, Bogdan. Hello. EV analyst uh, Connor. Hello. And as well as our product manager Simon. Happy New Year. All this discussion is uh, built around the stories published yesterday on our free weekly uh, newsletter. You can sign up for that at www.rethinkresearch.biz and then click on energy. Uh, and today we're going to discuss about how solar modules in China are falling dramatically in price about time based on uh, primarily the lowering cost of polysilicon. Uh, and yet another multi-million dollar green hub uh, has emerged in China. We'll talk about that briefly, and the fact that the Postal Service in the US has finally given in to the Biden administration and agreed to buy 60,000 electric vehicles. And last but not least, Simon will be pointing out whatever short items have captured his interest um, in the in the issue. But first, we're going to go to Andres and ask what's going on with solar modules. Well, as, as you would expect, the price is coming down. Uh, and that's mostly driven by the polysilicon expansion. Uh, the production is now more than twice each month than it was 12 months ago, as we've been covering. And of course, the rest of the supply chain is also expanding so much. Cell factories, wafer factories, module factories. We have we mentioned them at the end of each issue in the orders section, and there's some new ones uh, this year. So the, the supply is, is catching up with the demand finally. And so the question is, how soon is it going to return to its historical uh, LCOE decline, like, well, not LCOE, but just module price decline. Because uh, at the start of 2021, you had a cost for modules of, I've got here, $247 per kilowatt. I prefer to work in integers. Um, And then it rose by 25% through to the late part of 2022, just now. And so far, it's dropped about 5% in the past few weeks. Uh, but the, there's another 15% that it could fall to catch up to where it was uh, before the supply crunch started. And then I think it'll keep falling because you know, you're not just catching up to demand. I mean, you are for cells and wafers and modules, I think. But for, for polysilicon, because it takes a long time to build these factories, I do think, and this is all stuff that we've been predicting and talking about for at least a year probably now, I do think there'll be overcapacity of polysilicon. And that's a fairly major cost element. It's certainly the one that's Push the, the overall price up in the past couple of years. Oh, I uh, want to make a couple of points in there, Andrew. Mm-hmm. So, uh, really, first, congratulations to you because you're the only analyst out there who who uh, who, who looked at the um, amount of announcements on polysilicon factories and assured people that yes, this would happen. Uh, and we, you, if you think in the number of calls we were on last year where people were saying, yeah, but will China actually invest that money? Will they actually build those factories? And there was doubt all the time. And you you were convinced and you said, yes, they will. They'll build at least that many. And you've been proved right. So that's that's the first point. I almost feel like a round of applause is, is, is in order because that's um, that helps build your reputation as one of the leading solar analysts. The second thing is... Here we are building another supply chain in another part of the world, i.e. America, to combat Chinese dominance of uh, solar panels. Um, And we're doing it 
at a time when the prices now started tumbling. And that just means um, that's a very difficult supply chain to build. Yeah, I mean, you look at the pace of how long it takes to for, for Chinese industry that already exists to react to the price spike. It takes about, I mean, you have a high prices for, I think it'll end up being three years at most. Then you look at how long it takes to build an American supply chain. Well, first you have to elect a new government that actually wants to do it. And then they have to pass the bill. And then, and then you have this issue where you don't want to be making polysilicon and then having to export it to the wafer manufacturers that are in China. So you can only build a polysilicon plant once there's a wafer plant. But also you can only build a wafer plant once there's a cell plant because you don't want to try exporting wafers to China either. So they have to do it. They have to build the module plants and then the cell plants and then the wafer plants and only then the polysilicon plants. And I still uh, go along with what the Solar Energy Industries Association of the USA um, said, which is that that whole process will take 10 years. Well, that's a lot longer than the three years of elevated prices. And, and then when, once subsidies evaporate in 10 years, that has then got to be fully competitive with the Chinese um, structure. Otherwise, hmm. it was a pointless waste of money. I mean, if you want, I, I mean, there, there is a sort of political preference to have domestic manufacturing, which I kind of respect. Um, but yes, it's it's it is kind of it it just, it does also annoy me on a, on another level to see China building a solar manufacturing production capacity for really the whole world. I mean, why even bother? Why not just you're not going to sanction all of their trade? It's just the reality that you buy from China uh, anyway. But that's. Maybe we're getting. Well, no, no. I mean that, that, that is that that is the political dimension, um, and America quite rightly, um, it's allowed all of its companies to go to China and build cheaply to remain competitive, and now it's trying to bring all of its companies back from China to manufacture in America to rebuild an entire manufacturing base, not just for solar panels for everything. It's it's um, a flip flop, you know. The, the people that were in charge for the last three uh, American governments have been asleep at the wheel, allowing China, or four, um, allowing China to take this kind of leadership role. And it's um, it's, it's a really convenient thing. When a country is industrializing, you know, the first thing they, they, they export is agricultural stuff. Then there's a bit of mining. Uh, and then the next thing you know, we're, we're exporting something slightly more complicated. But really, the, the Western economies just carry on up the food chain, exporting products which are have, have more of a value add than the, than the lower kind of white goods market. And then slowly, uh, the, the, these companies get to the top of the tree and they're making electronics and they're making advanced uh, technologies with high prices associated with, um, with the value uh, that they add. And suddenly your economy is being threatened by them. Well, I mean, how does, it takes 25 years. How can nobody see this coming? <laughs> I just, I find it funny, really. And to, to return to the very specific thing about solar, um, the US isn't quite the only country trying to make its own manufacturing industry. Oh, I think they might succeed. Um, there's also India. And we've recently had the CEO of O2 Power uh, Payrag Sharma saying that there's going to be a disaster in the Indian solar industry because they're currently building projects with a stockpile of Chinese imported modules that they brought in ahead of a deadline on um, that was April 2022. And he's saying 
that the Indian government is, is still forcing people to stick to the um, approved list of models and manufacturers, which is the Indian production um, capacity. But it's not actually built yet, mostly. Like the factories are still being built. So there'll be this period of several years where the, the supply is just being interfered with quite severely in both countries. And that, that would maybe be okay for if you're just looking at your typical protectionist strategy. But there's also this idea with renewables that you want to build it right now because you want to get rid of the uh, pollution that comes out every single year from the existing um, fossil fuel power plants. So it is a bit of an issue. Also, if you've stockpiled um, modules, that means you've got to pay for them. That, that eats into mm. your cash flow. And if you if you got paid for them before you build them into into an installation and before you start collecting um, uh, you know getting if, that final investment money, your um, your your cash flow gets hit and you can't do anything else. It freezes the whole industry. I mean, we saw what's happened in America. I mean, in the last quarter in the states, we've built less solar than the last four years, and and this is sudden. Now that's purely because everyone's making. Uh, a pause for breath because of the uh, Inflation Re Reduction Act. Uh, and they're saying, oh, well, no, well, we might want to build a different one now. So they're rethinking it all. But they're going to lose six to nine months of installation in America because of, of something that's positive. Whereas if you've got something slightly negative, as you've described in India, um, they could lose a lot more. Hmm. And Trace, can you see uh, warehousefuls of, uh, you know, polysilicon wafers, cells, solar panels in China not being able to be exported? C could that happen? Hmm. Well, actually, while we're at it, I should mention that I, I can't remember if I said that modules are down 5%, but cells and wafers are down more like 20%, um, which is partly just because, you know, module cost is going down because of the component cost, but it still has the unchanging production costs of just the process. Um, so there is there is sort of um, some supply chain issues where some parts in the middle of the supply chain are now in plentiful supply. Um, so, you know, there, there now will be some stockpiling and stuff that doesn't get sold because they it's not even worth it to sell at, the, at a low price. I mean, that's not happening yet by any means. I think the price will still be declining uh, throughout this year. And maybe and China's got this, this perfect situation where it's got the entire world at its... Uh, yeah, yeah I never answer. I, I still need to actually answer Simon's question. I, I went on a sidetrack. So you're asking, like, will China be unable to sell its pro project, pro product? But the problem is... It, particularly with protectionist, uh, yeah. you know, the IRA and in Europe... Well, the, and the, the thing is that this year, China India. is something like... It's installing 95 gigawatts, I expect, it could, or even 100 gigawatts, and okay. that's like 40% of total installations. <laughs> yeah. So already it's got 40% of the world's market to serve. Then you've got like, <laughs> nice. and then you've got Europe, which is another okay. 41 gigawatts this year. So it, it, re it really is only the US and India that are doing this, and it can kind of can cope without that. I think. Uh, and and you, you look at other place, parts of the world like Africa, where it'll end up. China funding uh, the installation of solar to build uh, African hydrogen uh, hubs, um, and they're funding it with their own money so that they can sell their their solar panels. I mean, that, if that's a whole twenty-year project where you're effectively underwriting the industrialization of Africa. Um, so I don't see this. I don't see ever. As the answer to your question, Simon, is no. That's a silly question. Um, you know. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, they could. I think they could actually end up with like a. Well, they wouldn't build. They wouldn't make modules in any huge quantities and then not sell them. They would just shut up the factories. Um, I think. That, I think we could see overcapacity of, of of the Chinese solar industry, but it's more because they will constantly be expanding it and they'll overshoot it and there'll be a lot of, and really, and you'll only have the very most up-to-date stuff still making modules. Um, it'll just be because of the scale of the production capacity more than trade restrictions. Um, I'll go to something simple like televisions. When televisions, um, there was a, a price war in televisions. And the, the reason there's a price war is everyone wanted a flat television and the flat television screens came in certain sizes and then gradually those sizes went up to use more and more LCD and then those um, TV prices uh, still came down. And you went from $10,000 to buy a, uh, a kind of 70-inch screen over a five-year period to um, to $1,000 to buy more like a 44-inch screen. And all that happened is the way you manage the process, you change the price. You say, you know, I don't want any of your solar panels. Well, I've just halved the price. Do you want them now? Uh, yeah, all right. You know, so, so suddenly you manage that that market share grab by managing the price. And we saw the price of flash memory. We saw the price of chips. We saw the price of televisions. We saw the price of laptops all come down by something like 35% per annum for five or six years um, until the last man standing. And the last man standing in a uh, price war around solar will be China. And that's that's the that's what we're that's what Europe and America is up against. I don't think. And I just want to mention it. something about like the scale of manufacturing. I can't remember if we mentioned my Q3 solar installations research paper in the in our last um, podcast in last year, the end of 2022. But I'm pretty sure. I mean, it's almost hard to believe that 330 gigawatts has been manufactured through 2022, and it's not like this is all being hard to sell that the price is still high so i think that's been bought it's been manufactured and if it gets manufactured in 2022 then more or less it all gets installed in 2023 so i think that's a global installation figure of 330 gigawatts this year which is up 50 percent um <laughs> it's, I, it almost seems absurd to to say that but that's just what the numbers are you add up the number of coal plants there are you add up the number of gas plants that there are you work out how many gigawatts they output and and you build double cover cover in solar i.e you install twice as much solar and when you do sums like that you find that there's an almost inexhaustible supply uh, um, requirement demand going out to 2050 i mean it's uh, um, looking beyond 2050 is pointless because what we'll be installing would have changed so much by then i i, I think absolutely the, the, this is one of those markets where whatever you make, you can sell. Um, time to move on. Time to move on a little bit. Um, uh, I know we're in China again. I know that um, people who listen to this podcast say, yeah, but I don't operate in China. Why are you going on about China? China affects, is, affects the price of the world um, in so many different um, technology areas. So um, China's just put $12 billion into another green hub. Uh, um, Bogdan, you wrote this. Yes, uh, so the reason I titled this the 12 billion almost green hub is because apart from the wind and solar farms, we'll also contain a coal plant that is meant to account for a uh, peak demand. And um, that is the move that feeds China's attitude because they usually just mine their own. 
their own business. I mean, they have a target of 2060 for their net zero, instead of the more popular 2050. So it kind of fits their attitude. Um, the interesting thing about this is that there was no mention of any hydrogen production. And I believe since the price of hydrogen is very dependent on the abundance of wind speed and the solar radiation, I believe the China can't really pass on the opportunity of maybe in the future once the, the hub scales up to to link it to hydrogen production because it does have a target of 100,000 to 200,000 tons by 2025. Right. And we expect that to go up as well. So where is this and, and where, where will it have to transport the energy uh, in order to use it? So this is in Inner Mongolia, which is uh, northwest next to the Gobi Desert. It's actually the Kabuki Desert. Hope I'm not misspelling that. That's about 500 kilometers from Beijing, so fairly close to a very populated area. Yeah, and we know that they don't have a problem building, spending the money to build out any extra transmission needed. So if if they and and there's a whole lattice of transmission that's um, that's being built between now and 2030. So we. Um, yeah, so that this this can go to market, uh, and this is the China Three Gorges Energy Company, isn't it? Yes, that's correct. I always so uh, I'm just trying to remember the Three Gorges is named after the largest hydro plant in the world, but it's the largest yes. but by about two or three times bigger than the next biggest. Mm. So. Up until that twenty gigawatt one they built last year by Hetan, which is almost as big. Right. Okay, well, that, yeah, it just always impresses me with the scale that uh, I always look for something like that to be, you know, you, you think, oh, this is going to be a disaster. They can't possibly build um, such a massive, how much concrete will be needed? And, you know, what happens if, if it breaks? Um, and you forget, this is an industrialized power. They have engineers who can do the sums. Um, it doesn't break. Um, they're getting good at it. They've built 20,000 um, uh, um, dams in the last um, 20 years. So um, that yeah, company built Mahatan as well, actually, I just noticed. But yeah, company. I think <laughs> me and uh, myself and uh, was it uh, Connor, we, we've both written about the huge scale of pumped hydro storage. Um, that's been although I think I think Connor was a bit scathing about its um, relevance. And if it gets undercut by climate change, uh, affecting the rainfall. But it's oh, just, well, I mean, that wasn't pumped hydro. That was um. Oh, just that was hydropower. Oh, right, just outright hydropower. Yes, yeah. hydropower. I was at a solar conference in Amsterdam on floating solar, and one of the Chinese uh, speakers who were proud of what they thought was the largest floating solar installation in the world was asked the question, "What happens if the dam, if the reservoir dries up?" And she, and she said, "Oh, it has." Oh, <laughs> and everyone said, "Well, what happened?" And they said, "Well, the solar panels uh, sat on the floor of the reservoir." And performed perfectly. <laughs> and, and you thought, oh, wow, things, you know, that's not the plan. That's what happened in Brazil. Um, and then you start to look at where all the water's coming from. And that's um, man that you built 20,000 um, dams over the last 20 years. China may need more in order to survive the kind of drought that climate change could uh, could bring flood, pl flood followed by drought. That um, you know the Tibetan plateau flows to the sea um, via um, you know, China at first, and then uh, parts of it uh, are, are allowed into uh, Vietnam. You look in Vietnam; same things happening all the time. All their um, all their hydro is drying up because China's blocked the, the river further upstream. I mean, it's just uh, 
yeah, it's not it's not unthinkable that that that, that, that Connor might be right. You know that that, uh, that um, even China could be caught by this. Anyway, that was a bigger side. Sorry about that. But Bogdan, do you do you think with with the lack of hydrogen, do you think that this was planned a long time ago? Because it's, it's strange about the inclusion of a coal mine and the lack of hydrogen. What what do you think about that? I mean, I think if they if they uh, want to primarily use this for electricity demand, then it makes sense. And obviously, they have the space to then build another farm, I suppose. Um, that's going to be focused on hydrogen. But I think give them some time, give them time to scale it up, and I think hydrogen might pop up into this farm. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's, that's a natural progression. I think you made that point in the article. I think that it's almost certain that, that, that this plan is a little old and that it's just finally coming into the execution phase. And that, that's, um, um, that's why it doesn't mention hydrogen. But um, why wouldn't you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's just the scale of these things. When we, we talk about the um, you know, $12 billion, um, there are not many uh, kind of energy hubs around the world that, have, that are spending that amount of money. There are a few that are spending reasonable percentages of that amount of money, um, but not, not that many. And China seems to throw up another one every week. Um, so uh, just, just on to our last story uh, of the week. Um, it's, it's just a piece that came out um, or a week or so before Christmas, but I thought it was worth putting in. Um, for the, and it's funny, nobody mentioned this part. You know, the US Postal Service is going to buy um, 66,000 uh, electric vehicles by 2028. Uh, that's a fairly drab announcement until you realise that the US Postal Service is, after the American military, the largest um, or the second largest car fleet in America. Um, and that's that's basically the second largest in the Western world. And then Louis Louis or Louis de Joy, um, the uh, Postmaster General said, pretty much over my dead body will we buy the electric vehicles um, last February, um, and and issued a plan um, to buy from a, a defence contractor, a company uh, called Oshkosh Defence, 165,000 trucks, most of which, nearly all of which, were going to be. Um, internal combustion engines, and that has now completely turned on its head. Um, and the reason it's turned on its head is been pressure from um, Joe Biden and Co. Um, and the um, it's really quite funny um, that that, that um, DeJoy, uh, get, in a quote that was attributed to him in the press release, said, "I personally have benefited from the collaborative spirit." of John Podesta, Senior Advisor to the President and Leader of the Office of Energy Innovation, as well as the leaders within the Council of Environmental. These professionals have demonstrated a real understanding of how vehicle electrification can be incorporated into the Postal Service's mission. Yeah, that and the fact that the IRA gave him $3 billion to do it, (laughs) which is kind of not mentioned in the same sentence. So um, he's moved... Biden has moved heaven and earth to, to make a, a Trump appointee change his view on um, on uh, postal on the postal fleet being electric by waving three billion dollars at him. Um, it's it needed to be done, um, but the the other option was fire him and put put a Democrat uh, in charge. But that, that 
that option wasn't uh, wasn't considered. And um, in fact, when, when I think about this, one of the things we haven't done as a calculation, um, because it's it's full of decisions like this, is work out how many fleets will how rapidly they will go. Business fleets will go to electric vehicles over the next ten years. Um, you know, these are all individual decisions where they can say, no, 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 we're not going to use electric. We're not, you know, they're not reliable enough. They're too expensive. And then suddenly uh, you're fired. The new CEO says, we embrace electric. And suddenly there's an avalanche of orders. I mean, we know this is happening in um, a number of the uh, kind of postage and mail companies. Um, it made it only made sense that, um, that the post office went this route. Well, what's really alarming is, Virtually no vehicles have been bought for the last 30 years by the American <laughs> Post Office. Um, they, they've basically been arguing about this upgrade for most of that time. And different, different political appointees have been dragging it in different directions. Um, and here we have something definitive because the money's on the table. What about other big fleets? I'm, I'm thinking here about rental companies. Hertz went bust and came back from Chapter 11. Uh, I guess Avis and also Uber. So, uh, um, how do you think it, it the the U.S. Postal Service deal um, as a big as a you know one a big fleet? How does that uh, compare with with other big fleets? Well, m- most of them have, have given some kind of commitment. I mean, I think Hertz gave a commitment. Um, to... Which I'm sure I saw something about that. In, yeah, in, we wrote we, we wrote about it twice. First, first we wrote about. Yes its first electric order and how it wasn't really going to embrace um, EVs. And then a year or so later, uh, same thing happened. You know, mm. um, one quarter of its fleet will be electric by the end of 2024. Um, and I believe, I'm trying to remember, one of these um, is put in a big order for, for someone like a Tesla to make a slightly specialised um, uh, vehicle. I'm, I'm not... Uh, I think that one went initially to General Motors and then has changed hands. But I'd have to look that one up. Um, I, I suppose with the, the U.S. Postal Service, it'll be it's it's easy to uh, to set up an infrastructure because all you need are the chargers back at the sorting offices and and the warehouses. But you can't necessarily do that with um, with uh, rental cars or uber or whatever um well you can, i mean the thing about rental cars is is that the number of locations that they uh, you can get a rental from every town's got got a location and every one of those has a car park so you can um you can simply open the uh put put uh, charges there and open them up for people who uh, have rented from you uh, automatically and then turn it into a business so i i don't see that being an obstacle i see that being an asset that uh, Hertz and Avis and others, um, as they round out their strategy, will will end up with a new revenue source, which is um, our own cars being charged at our own car parks and um, and other people and passing traffic also, you know, airports in, in particular, um, passing traffic also being able to use them to recharge um, for some extra revenue. So I, I think that's going to be um, part and parcel of their strategies. Um, we have written about that. I'm just, it's just not, it's more than six months ago. So I, I don't want to be, um, uh, I think we listed v- virtually everybody now has a plan. But the, the US Postal Service was the one uh, that was the holdout, big holdout. I mean, the other one, of course, is the military. At some point, um, 
something like this really reflects well. So Oshkosh is is one of these defense contractors who builds jeeps for for the military and build trucks for the military and build semi um, uh, you know non track uh, almost tank like vehicles as well. So them swearing off at EVs uh, in in one breath. Um, I, th- I think as recently as March, they said something like 10,000 of the order that they would deliver to the postal service would be electric. Well, they had to come up with an electric design of their own. You know, they, 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 they may have done that in partnership with one of the other EV suppliers. But I think that's the writing on the wall. Once a defence contractor starts to learn how economic electric vehicles are, then they start pushing them at the military and then the largest fleet in the whole bloody world. Um, starts buying them. So that, that's going to happen. And it'll start with non-essential, non-military vehicles. And then slowly, it'll ease in from there as they get better at it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think there are as many cars um, owned by corporations. Um, I mean, are there as many cars owned by corporations as there are private individuals? Perhaps not. Um, but but there's still a significant number. And... Um, and sometimes it's difficult to distinguish um, in, in the summary government-issued numbers uh, how many of these are passenger vehicles owned by passengers or passenger vehicles owned by somebody else. Um, you know, and, and, and you have to look, at, well, you look at Hertz and Avis. Um, one, of the, one of the really interesting things that you get if you're looking at the um, Inflation Reduction Act, you look at its numbers, is the number of second-hand electronic vehicles that are going to be electric vehicles that are going to be funded by, by the Act. And the, the fact that they're anticipating three or four years after you've bought your Tesla, it, it, well, all right, that's going to go back to Tesla and Tesla will remarket it. But in a lot of cases, there'll be a natural secondhand market um, that's, that's coordinated by the manufacturer, but not necessarily interfered with. And that will need funding as well. You know, if you want to buy a much cheaper electric vehicle, three years from now, you, can, you should be able to buy one coming off lease um, from uh, someone like Hertz and Avis. They've got to unload their vehicles somewhere. So that, that, that's going to happen. And once that second-hand market comes along, then it embraces, you know, everyone talks about a $25,000 electric vehicle, and most of them are 40000 or, or or just under now. Um, that vehicle will probably arrive first from the second-hand market. You know, it will be a $40,000 vehicle, which is lost a bit of battery capacity, but it's still okay um, uh, and on the market for $20,000. So that's definitely going to happen, whether anyone builds one or not. It's going to just come through secondhand and use. It's, it's, um, and these big decisions, uh, I just say, you know, sometimes you can't forecast the big decisions. You just have to say, well, this many cars are in fleets and these decisions will be made. I can't imagine anyone will not have a 100% EV purchase rule in America um, beyond 2030. Who runs a fleet? I think it's going to be automatic. And I think a lot of them will be a long, long time before that, 2026, 27. Simon, what you got for us? Well, yeah, it's, I, I was uh, uh, struck how the, the lack of hydrogen in this week's edition. So I don't know if that's uh, going to carry on um, in, in the new year. Probably not. It's been quiet. But, but one of the things that the big um, things happening in the world is the inauguration of Lula da Silva in Brazil. And 
I was reading the um, in the worth noting section. They're kind of mixed messages coming out. One part is, uh, is, is well, it's about um, petrol supporting Petrobras to um, the, the state-run oil company to um, expand refining. But I I was led to believe that Lula's Brazil was a a new exciting market for renewable energy. Uh, am I right in thinking that? Uh, Connor, I think you might have written about. Um, these transfers. I did. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. What's what? How is is Brazil a a big opportunity for renewable energy uh, developers and suppliers? Absolutely. It always has been, and likely always will be, as long as it has a coastline, which okay. <laughs> it absolutely always will. The potential for offshore wind and for solar and that other thing is immense. It's absolutely ridiculous. I mean, for, for solar, it's exploded in specifically the last few years. So I don't know what Luna's doing to improve things, but they're all already very good for solar, including distributed. Well, utility scale is doing fine as well. The issue with solar within Brazil is kind of with the land usage. And while the solar radiation is good, you kind of need to get rid of the trees to be able to put it down. Whereas with offshore wind, it's much less of an issue. And while there is concerns to marine life, it's not affecting the Amazon itself, which is one of Lula's big, big priorities and his main kind of... It's probably not an understatement to say that that's why he won the election. and Because it, it was that close. And Brazil has these very thick it's very dense and the capacity factor is very high for offshore wind and onshore even on the coast you you simon you asked about oil and there's a really important thing here um and we've written about this in the past and it's 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 been uh, it's a number of companies countries have the potential to go bankrupt when oil falls in price and brazil is one of them because the cost of menu of bringing the oil out of the ground and, and refining it and delivering it to market is too high from from Brazil. So when you um, said that the state-run oil company Petrobras uh, will expand the country's refining sector, that's basically putting in refineries that are not 30, 40 years old, so that the cost of processing the oil once it's out of the ground comes down so that they stay in the oil market. The government is dependent on that revenue today and will be for the next 10 years. And if, if the country doesn't want to end up defaulting on all its loans and its economy falling apart, it has to sustain that for as long as it's viable while, while spending money on renewables. So, you know, we, we identified Me Mexico, in fact, already um, did the weird uh, act of buying uh, through, through the uh, Mexican oil company, buying... Uh, a shell refinery in America to refine its oil because the cost of refining would come down as a result because theirs is so high. And it's all because infrastructure is uh, is very old. So you're gonna, you've got places like Mexico, Brazil, um, you know, in, in, the, in the Middle East, uh, I think Iran might fall into this category, where the cost of bringing the oil to market is already massively too high. And if the price of oil falls, the, the country itself could go bankrupt. So I think that is just pragmatism, and I don't think that's against the, uh, the the spirit of the Lula government. I'd also add that the main aim for the refining is for domestic consumption and, and to reduce reliance on international markets themselves. So it's not necessarily to add to international markets in supply and that sort of thing. It's to reduce reliance and exposure towards price fluctuations in the broader market.
We've been saying uh, for some years that Lula would win this election. And we've been saying that, that, um, that the Bolsonaro government was, um, was basically just running the country for a few rich people. Um, and this was always on the card, although it was very close. Um, but we, you do see uh, him bringing back um, Marina Silva uh, as environment minister. Um, and she, um, she was, uh, uh, I believe it's a she, um, <laughs> uh, was, um, was, was meant to be instrumental in uh, a lot of the emissions reduction that came from Brazil when Lula was last in power. She was a massive environmental activist, yes. And it really shows that Lula's quite happy to piss off the agribusiness. Yeah, because they can't win a vote anymore. She was absolute from them in 08. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it, that, that is the problem, that, that, that if we end up with um, the agro uh, business taking over again. But as I think we said in an article um, just around the election, said if you were, mm -hmm. if you were advising Brazil on how to go forwards, you, you, you would advise the agro businesses to not set fire to the Amazon because that's what's drying up and creating a drought, which is causing shortfall in the soya production and various other productions uh, and ruining the agro business. Um, that, that they have to be as cognizant of climate change as everybody else. Uh, if they want a, a Brazil to be a breadbasket of the world, continue to be that, they, you, can't, you can't promote climate change. It's just insane. It's interesting because effectively the people producing animal products are actively harming the people who are producing the vegetation that then goes to feeding the animal product. <laughs> so whichever one starts, you're still bad, but cattle is significantly worse because it kind of leads to a, a cyclical effect where you can't get domestic feedstock as easily. And it's also mostly for export anyway. Yeah. Well, the cattle yeah, is. The cattle, yeah. Okay. Um, I think that's enough for this uh, this um, first 2023 issue. We'll be back next week with uh, another uh, podcast. Uh, meanwhile, if you want to read these stories and others, you go to www.rethinkresearch.biz. Uh, on the menu, you'll see the, the energy button. You click that and um, you'll be reading the free newsletter. Um, take a look at forecasts and data. That's what we do that's our day job. That's how we make our money. Um, we forecast, um, do 10 forecasts a year and 20 research papers a year on um, the economics surrounding renewable energy. Um, so while you're reading the weekly analysis, why not um, take a little peek at that as well and consider becoming a customer. Um, thank you and goodbye for now.